Ladies and gentlemen, it's Thursday. You know what that means? It's welcome to the Art Fight Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Nolan. I'm here with Brian Siskin. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, sir. How are you today? Good. That was a very professional introduction. I'm feeling very yeah. professional. I'm sitting up straight. I'm uh, having a pretty uh, good day. Yeah. It's exciting times, no matter what you're into. It's whatever it is, man, it's going on. If you like chaos, <laughs> welcome to 2020. Anyway, yeah, so it's just you and me here at this moment. I'm actually literally just now getting a message from our guest, and uh, I'll tell you what this says. Last week, we announced that we were going to have a bare-knuckle fighting championship, boxer, fighter, all-around gentleman of violence, Tom Schof on the show. And uh, Tom is in the process of joining us in a minute. He got held up a little bit, but he's supposed to be on the show today. He was very, very cool about getting rescheduled for this week. So I'm sure Tom will be on with us soon, but we went ahead and just started the the show. We're going to try to pull him on as soon as he is able to click through. I'm, I'm wondering if he just was about to message me and saw my last message, which was just reinforcing how to click through to get onto. <laughs> but anyway, so I'm, I can't wait to have Tom on here before we talk too much about Tom. Let's wait for him to get on here. But yeah, yeah. you and I were just talking a little bit about some of the stuff that's going on this weekend. There's a UFC fight with uh, Figueredo and uh, Shevchenko are both fighting. And what's this? Also, I think that actually this weekend is a good, like if you're somebody that's just a little curious about MMA because okay, you he's saying He's saying, it won't, go ahead and talk. I'm going to try to do something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was just going to say that I think that the card this weekend, it doesn't have the promise of some sort of insane implications. It's not like the biggest fight card in the world, but there's some very good fighters on it. And the makeup of the card itself is, it's a good, I think it's just going to be good quality mixed martial arts to watch. And I think that especially anybody that's curious about maybe tuning in for the first time or something, I really think that watching Shevchenko, Valentina Shevchenko do her thing is a, a great entree into the whole thing because it's it's about as technically beautiful as anything you're going to see. It's as fine art as anything you can see. I agree. I think she's fantastic. And and we were just talking about the fact that when you have fighters who are primarily counterpunchers, they rely on the aggression of their opponent. So sometimes Shevchenko's fights can be less than action-packed, but, mm. but often they are action-packed. And often, even when they are less than action-packed, she ultimately is able to pull something exciting out of the bag. And then her last fight was not necessarily the most exciting fight of the year, but she ended it very suddenly with the flair of drama that I'm glad I caught live. <laughs> so yeah, uh, so yeah. if you like seeing people be suddenly knocked unconscious by uh, two by four head kicks, this might be something for you. Another thing that's going on this week, this is the Art Fight Podcast, Brian. I don't know how much you're aware of this, but mm. we like to talk, we like to blend those together. Yeah. Sometimes. We like yeah. to mix it all up together. Yeah. And this week, you actually just informed me of this. I know that this premiered last week, 36 Chambers, which is Riza from Wu-Tang Clan. That's his essentially like his brand. He does clothes and all sorts of different projects under the 36 Chambers banner. And he's been hosting movies that are basically films that they're showing. And then there's always a commentary with Riza and other guests or just other guests. A lot of people have been jumping on there to take over and show these old Kung Fu movies and stuff. Mostly these are movies that Riza has had some kind of a musical connection with like movies he's borrowed samples from or movies he's done soundtracks for mm -hmm. this last week jim jarmusch did a commentary for ghost dog which is a movie that rizza did the soundtrack for and that soundtrack just recently came out on vinyl brian just got that in the mail he can tell you all about what an amazing package this limited edition vinyl is but this week they're going to replay the ghost dog film on the 36 chambers platform and this time rizza is going to do the commentary which i think would be fascinating so if you haven't seen ghost dog this is a great opportunity opportunity to watch a great movie and hear a great soundtrack. While you're pondering that, I just wanted to say that one of the things that we'll just keep it going about ghost dog here for a second, because okay, yeah, it's really fine. worth talking about before we move on, but and we'll get Tom figured out. He, he'll get to, it's really click the link, but anyway, yeah. So as far as ghost dog goes, I think that I've never seen such a, a powerful combination of soundtrack and movie together in a way that that movie worked. And especially like at the time, it just really in the, you know, the nineties, God bless the nineties, but it was, I think the last also of truly sublime mass marketed film on some level, like big, bigger, big name. It wasn't fully like an underground, people call it a cult classic, but it was Forrest Whitaker stars in it. It's not a bunch of randos. So anyway, there's just something about the way that the, the timing and the pace and the dialogue and the 
the way that they weave humor and like you were saying earlier, like a, a sort of a, a the urban the concept of the urban samurai in a really pure form is just a cool thing. But mm-hmm. also, I love a protagonist that's where it's conflicted, right? He's an assassin, mm-hmm. so. Yeah, it's cool. It's that's what's great about it is it's again for people who might not have seen this film, it's a it's a it's a movie about a hitman living in New York in the 90s, I guess is when that movie was made. Is that correct? Yeah. And 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 there's like mobsters involved and all this stuff. So it has all the trappings of a gangster milieu, but the story is told from the point of view uh, or from the, with the, with the aesthetics of a samurai film. And like this guy who's a hitman, he has a code of honor and he works for a specific mob boss. So that's like his Shogun or whatever, like his emperor kind of thing. And he is, and he's, he's like Brian said, he's a good guy in the sense that he has, he a, lives by a code. He lives by a code of right and wrong. And it's not the code of society necessarily, but it's his and it's and the way all the pieces of this movie fit together it just ends up being a really even though all these things we're talking about gangster films samurai movies all this stuff is been done but he puts it together in this really interesting way this interesting jarmushian quiet quirky character dialogue driven story and it's fascinating and the soundtrack is incredible and yeah, it and goes it's, so and, well with it and it's like i was saying it's the end of To me, it marks the time of the end of movies that were not in a hurry. Mm. I I feel like the it's to me. It was I think that something that really was. We've talked about '70s cinema a lot, but Mm. to me, like that was the peak of. We'll get there when we get there, and and it can be a little bit richer and uh, longer pause and Mm. shots and just more sublime. But I'll never forget when I saw that movie for the first time. I was very rarely in my life can I just point to moments where it was like, oh, that was like. But that was a really pivotal <laughs> movie. But yeah, it's yeah, it's all samurais and gangsters, but it's also so delicate and innocent and poetic. It's a great thing. So yeah, Saturday Night 36 Chambers, certainly worth doing. I'm, I'm also like really all about people that are trying to really push during this time and for them to charge 10 bucks, but you don't even have to leave your house and you can go essentially sit in a virtual theater. They've created a, a sort of an experience. It's not just like... A, log into some other stream or something it's they've really gone the extra mile to create something so it's cool these are people that uh, that have always been inventive so it's a cool the spirit of it is just very cool oh look at this i must recommend hey yeah all right i knew we could do it i knew we We could do it (laughs) i knew we could do it (laughs) usually usually tom we meet people (laughs) in this little virtual green room we say hi before we go live but right now we're live so what's up man yeah man just throw me in the fire let's go how's everybody doing today Yeah, doing, doing great. great, man. Okay, here we go, Tom. It's great to talk to you. I'm really glad we finally got you on the show. It's uh, it took us a second there, but I appreciate your patience and I appreciate you sticking with us to come on today. I just want to give a little background. I don't know how much you know about the podcast, but the Art Fight Podcast. We we talk to an audience that's really into combat sports, especially MMA, but we also speak to an audience that's really into like painting and dance and filmmaking and things like that. Very so. Cool. I want to get into some stuff that the fight fans are going to want to show up for today, but I also want to get some basics covered for the novices who don't know any better. But to okay. just start off with, uh, I'm aware of you because of your recent fights with the bare knuckle fighting. What's bare knuckle fighting championship? I'm sorry, I kept on thinking it's always it always ends in championship. <laughs> it always ends in championship. <laughs> yeah, so with with the BKFC is how I normally think about it. And and I recently saw on your Instagram, which everybody should be following, by the way. I recently saw on your Instagram uh, that you took a photo of yourself and you were wearing a gi and you were just getting done with the jujitsu practice. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, man, Tom's doing jujitsu. And then I looked and I realized that I didn't know hardly anything about all the fights you've done because before this recent handful of fights you did with the BKFC, you've already done a number of MMA fights and you have an MMA fight coming up in January. Yeah. Yeah. All of that is 100% accurate. I've been spending the last couple of years. So to start from the beginning, I started fighting probably 10 or 12 years ago and I started with MMA. I had a pretty extensive amateur career and then I went pro. And as soon as I went pro, I started to notice some glaring weaknesses in my game. So I took some time off, fixed those holes, had a long stretch of a career, 
and then fix some more holes. And then as of recently, I've been in the point because I've got I'm 11 and four. So I've got 15 mm-hmm. professional fights in MMA. And wow. that's a really tricky record because I have a lot of experience but I don't necessarily have a lot of high level experience. Mm -hmm. So what I really needed to do was just get better was to take a step back, really focus on my grappling, really focus on my wrestling because my striking is good. My striking is what got me where I was, but everything else had to catch up. So I figured I would stay active with my fighting by going to bare knuckle and focusing on my jujitsu and my training. So for the last three years, I've been focusing on my wrestling and my grappling outside of my fights and that's where I've been at as far as my MMA career. I decided to come back to MMA because I feel like I'm ready. I think I'm I think I'm pretty close to my black belt now. I've got three stripes on my brown and I'm winning. You, you, you know? What's when you that? Say, when you say you're pretty close to your black belt, you've already got three stripes on your brown, you're talking about your jujitsu belt, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Again, for our novice listeners who don't know the rankings. Yeah. You need four stripes to get qualified for your black, and I've got three. So we'll see where the next year plays out. But I'm just, I feel like I'm ready to come back. I'm 32 years old, almost 32 years old, and my time's running out. So I want to get back in the MMA game. I want to start, uh, I want to start where I left off, so to speak, I'll pick up where I left off and go from there. That's a little hey. bit of Tom's background. Hey yeah, Tom, I'm, I'm, I'm Brian, by the way, uh, and that's Joe, just so you don't have us mixed up. But, uh, but I want, I want, this is like a, we talk about all kinds of shit here and we think things will get weird sometimes, but I, I, I kind of <laughs> wanted just to go right to the dark place. Yeah. So I guess what I'm curious about is something I find fascinating is that in every other craft, right? If you're a, a musician or an artist of some kind, you have some trajectory of the entirety of your life that you feel like you can utilize to do sort of your masterpiece or your life's work. But there's something about uh, you know athletics in general, and obviously specifically with fighting. Although some people don't, uh, some people don't realize they should sunset their careers. But ultimately, mm-hmm. I find it really interesting that you're training and correcting and fixing and and changing modes by different types of rule sets, different promotions. You're still in this sort of a constant flux and state of improvement because you have to be. But within the context of like. When you say I'm 31, 32, there's only so much more of this that I should realistically do. You know, I can't imagine what it would feel like as a as an artist, a producer, a musician, filmmaker, whatever, to be like, I've got maybe a good five years left where I can do, you know what I mean? What I love mm-hmm. to do the most and brings me the most happiness. How do you reconcile that? I think that the only way that I really can reconcile it is it's nature. Like the human body can only do so much for so long. And as a male, I reach my physical peak and prime between 34 and 38. Mm -hmm. I've only got so much time to get as good as possible without absolutely destroying my body Mm -hmm. and then utilizing those four years of my peak or my prime to do the best that I can do in this sport. So I think as far as reconciliation goes, it's just understanding that I, that human nature has provided me with a time frame, and I've only mm-hmm. got so long to get <laughs> my goals accomplished. There's really no ifs, ands, or buts. There's really no other way around it. If there right. was something a little more, with a little more leniency or a little more leeway, I'd be like, ah, mm-hmm. dang, but like you can't <laughs> human nature. I understand. Do not resist the imminent because that's pretty a futile th- thing to do, but, but you're very yeah. quick and it's easy to overlook how quickly it is or how hard it is and how quickly you accept that. And just that's the framework through which you operate. You know what I mean? Because I think a lot of people operate in various levels of kind of resistance towards that. So I just thought that was a, that's an interesting sort of point of view and like a place where you are, especially switching gears between bare knuckle. I feel like I've always been a long-term thinker, so to speak. Mm. So anytime I'm thrown in a situation or I'm put into a scenario, I'm never, I never, I never think of, okay, what's going to happen right now it's like so i make this decision and this is the consequence of this decision now and then the consequence from now and then the consequence a month from now and i have to look at that time period so when i made the commitment to this to this sport and to this career i had to look at it like that i had to look at it realistically okay like tom you're gonna fight for a living but unless you make a tremendous amount of money, you're not going to retire off of fighting. Mm-hmm. So you need to look at that realistic time frame, and then you need to look at what you're going to do after that. So that's always just been my mentality. I've always had that in the back of my head. And I think it's benefited me because a lot of people don't have that long-term thought process. Mm-hmm. A lot of people 
don't understand that longevity is key in this sport. And if you ruin your body before you even get to the point where you can perform at its peak, you've done yourself a disservice. So I just try to keep that in mind. I'm always trying to be one step ahead of myself Mm -hmm. in that sense. I think recently, especially, it seems like in the last five years, I've heard more and more of this when it comes to just getting the behind the scenes understanding of these different training camps, different fighters are going through and what they're doing. And I know in a lot of the books that I've read about Muhammad Ali, there's more than one book I've read about Muhammad Ali where they talked about the fact that that as much as he took punishment in the fights that he had, he also, especially later in his career, had this way of sparring where he would let himself get hit a lot in sparring. And a lot of people around Muhammad Ali said that's where he ultimately got hurt. That's what ultimately did the damage to him mm-hmm. and affected his ability to speak and all this kind of stuff. And in MMA, we see more and more fighters and coaches saying the sparring is the thing that is the danger zone here. Yeah. These fights are bad, getting a knockout or something like that. It can be, you know, damaging to a fighter, but it's what's happening in the gyms day after day, month right. after month, week after week, training camp after training camp. That's mm-hmm. the real wear and tear. So for you, like, how do you, how are you training and what are you doing to develop these skills you need to meet this physical peak you're heading toward right now and be the best fighter you can be when you've got all of the, you know, all of your, your physicality and everything behind it. But how do you, how are you doing your training to maximize all that without taking that damage i was depending on how you look at this i was either fortunate or unfortunate to learn that (laughs) lesson early i had a lot of training partners in my early days and we were all young and hungry and we would just beat the life out of each other (laughs) and i would wake up with shakes still to this day i'll swallow the end of my words i'll mix words up things like that and i this was at 23 24 Mm -hmm. so i was noticing the stuff really early so i really pulled away from it and i've taken that in stride now as i've gotten older and basically i I reserve my sparring to a maximum of once a week. I usually spar on Sundays and it's always with 16 ounce gloves. If I'm wearing right. MMA gloves or smaller gloves, we're wearing headgear. And that's mainly for cuts. It's not so much for concussive damage because mm-hmm. headgear doesn't really help for concussive damage, but it does prevent with cu- help mm-hmm. prevent cuts. Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't abuse my body it, outside of that. I train and I do things that are abusive to my body, but it also helps make me stronger. I lift weights fairly consistently now. Mm-hmm. I'm always in the gym. I'm literally in the gym every day. There's rarely a day that I'm not in the gym, but it's all intelligent. If I beat the hell out of my body yesterday, I'm not going to do it again today. I'm going to be technical. I'm going to be smooth. I'm going to, I'm going to work to my body's ability without overdoing it. And I think that's just something that we learn in time. We learn Mm -hmm. what we're capable of and what we're not capable of. We learn how hard we can push ourselves and keep going and still be strong. And when we need to taper back a little bit and give ourselves a couple of days, but it's if I could answer this question in in one failed swoop, it would be it's just a learning curve. The more you do it and the more you understand about it, the more what your body can take and what it can't. And I learned at a very young age that I was doing too much to my body. And now I try to be as smart as possible with it. Like I yeah. said, I reserve my sparring to once a week. After my fights, I don't get on the mats for six weeks for God, like my last fight. I didn't take a lot of damage in my last fight at all. I still haven't sparred. I've sparred one time since that last fight, and that was last week. Uh, say just Sunday, so five days ago. Just because when your body goes through that, it needs time to heal and recover. So again, to pull this thing full circle, it's just time and experience. <laughs> I've been doing this for long enough that I know how to push myself and how hard I can push myself without overdoing. I've, I've always thought there's some strange phenomena there, right? Like it's universal, whether you're a drummer or whatever, like where if you watch a musician that's, a, that's honed their craft, they are, they've got economy of movement and technique. Like they're, they are not wasting synapses or energy and it's very focused. And it's the same thing I would imagine for, for combat sports. Like you just, you can achieve exactly the same thing, if not more, just by having a little bit of a a kind of a a piece that you're coming from. But I I think about though, at the same time, when you're talking about staying, like taking time out, not sparring as much and all that, I wonder about people. I hate this conversation more than anything. I'm not, I just, because I'm saying the word ring rust does not mean I'm talking about it, but just as a point of reference, (laughs) ring rust. People talk about that sometimes. I, I, I just, I don't know. I'm just. 
I feel like it's, I'm very Robin Black about that particular one. Like it's okay, this is really like the resolution in which we're going to talk about this. Like it's not just as simple as, because for instance, like I always had this kind of funny thought in my head. Like what if, what if NFL teams could have one person legally on their team that has maybe never played football in their life. Mm-hmm. And then if you ever are in a position where it's like the Super Bowl and like you're down and you've got to get somebody to run a kickback all the way. And you just bring that person in and have somebody catch the ball and hand it to them in the same way that like moms will lift cars to save babies like that, <laughs> like that sort of like superhuman adrenaline thing. Like the guy's tendons would be flying out, but he would not get hit by any of these people. You know what I mean? Like, like I, I, I appreciate I, that. It's got beginner's luck when you get somebody who, who's never fought a game of life and then you throw them in the ring and they're piecing people up. Like it happens. You get guys who get off the court and they're all over the place. So for the record, I'm not, I am not saying that this is remotely a sound modality of thinking, but I guess just as a point of example, I feel like if you're laying off of it, I wonder if it does create just a, a, a sample of that sort of urgency when you're in the cage, when you haven't been over sparring and all that to where it's, this is a real fight right now. This is a real fight right now. I, I don't, I've never yeah. done it, so I don't know, but I just speculate. I wonder. Yeah, I would say that is act. That's a really good, that's a really good way of putting it. And if we're, if I'm doing my job properly in training camp, the work that I do in the gym and the work that I do in the cage on fight night are one in the same. There's no difference in emotion and expectation in practice versus reality. It should they should be synonymous with each other. But that's only if you're doing things properly. If you don't train properly, if you are not as mentally prepared and focused as you can be, as confident in your preparations as you can be, you're gonna go in there with, oh, I forgot about this, or oh, what if he does this, or oh, what if this happens? Mm-hmm. And then that creates doubt. And mm-hmm. when doubt comes into play then it's a real fight then it's oh no there are serious consequences here Mm -hmm. but when your confidence is through the roof because you know you've done all the work it's just another day in practice Mm -hmm. oh that's really interesting man i love your insights there we like we we definitely are happy to speak with you and to speak to fighters like you who are willing to dive this deep into what they're doing in terms of how they train and how they anxieties they might have or issues they're thinking about or their long-term goals and all that stuff. So I really appreciate all these insights you're giving us, Tom. And another thing that I think is interesting about you and another reason why I wanted to get you on the show isn't just the fighting thing, which is obviously the core of what you're doing and the core of what all your peers are doing as well. And what we talk about on the show and there's another thing. There's an it factor thing that plays into the career beyond the actual fighting record and things like that. And you, to me, are someone who really stands out at the BKFC. The BKFC is a rel- relatively young organization. There mm-hmm. are there. If if I'm now, tell me if I'm right about this real quick. They are the first bare knuckle fighting organization in America that was able to, that was outlawed for a long time. And they were the people who broke the ice here in the States and were able to make it into an organized sport again. Is that correct? Yeah. So it has been underground for a long time. Florida has underground. <laughs> Nobody stopped yeah. doing it, by the yeah, way. But they right. just, yeah. <laughs> like Kimbo Slice and Dada 5000 and that Mighty Mouse character. Like it's been around for a while, but right. yes. The BKFC was the first legitimate organization to bring sanctioned bare knuckle fighting back to the United States since 1887, I think. I'm pretty sure that the show that they did in in Cheyenne, Wyoming was the first show in 131 years or 133 years, something like that. Yeah, they were the first organization to bring it back as a sanctioned legal sport in the United States in over a hundred years. I saw Tom, I saw you once explain it somewhere. I heard you explain it where you were like, okay, like the meme that goes around on the internet. You yeah. Explain- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This one. Like, yeah, one. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and he says whatever bullshit, that's uh-huh. the guy. Yeah. That's, that's the, the guy. That, that's how it all got famous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think the thing with it is like that sport to some degree, it's recently gotten uh, a lot of shine because of Fighters from the UFC who've gone over there, Jason Knight and Artem Lobov had a great fight. Pauli Malinaji came out of retirement, a well-known pro boxer, a former mm-hmm. champion pro boxer, came out of retirement to fight a UFC guy there. So it seems like a lot of these other other sports and also other organizations have lent their somewhat high-profile faces 
to the bare knuckle fighting world. And, and that's helped to get a lot of attention on bare knuckle fighting. But for me, Tom, you are the guy who has come out of bare knuckle fighting and made a name for yourself as a persona above and beyond just what you've been able to do in the ring. To me, you're the guy that I've noticed just as a character, essentially. And I wondered, what is, how much do you think about and how important is it? And what part of your whole plan has to do with- Joe, he's just being him, man. He's just being himself. <laughs> I don't think you're being disingenuous by any means, but I really do think that you have a certain persona that transcends. To me, you're like a Donald Cerrone or one of the Diaz brothers. You're like one of these guys who- I, it's like if Tom Schof is fighting, there's Tom Schof people who want to see Tom Schof fight, win, lose, or draw. We know it's going to be a great fight. We want to see you do your thing. And it doesn't matter what your rank is. It doesn't matter if you're winning or losing. None of that's really important. It's a Tom Schof fight. Does that make sense? <laughs> thank you. That, like, that, that's very kind of you to say. And, and thank you. I really appreciate that. I, it's as far as like me fighting goes and like my fight style, I, I just like to fight. Like that's the long story. <laughs> I uh, I have that like gladiator mentality, that for the love of the crowd mentality. So mm-hmm. um, anytime I fight, I think that's why my fans like watching me fight so much is because I don't go out and try to score points. I don't go out and try to win the judge's decision. I'm trying to hit you as many times as possible as I can before the ref stops the fight or before the fight's over. That's my <laughs> whole goal. And I, I think that me being honest and true to that it has what's has been what stood out from me out of everybody else because I'm not just I'm not scared to get in the thick of it I'm not scared to go out there and fight and I love what I do and people see that while I'm performing and I think that's I think that's the second part of being a professional fighter I think that being a professional fighter is obviously about fighting it's about being a good athlete and being a good performer in in in, in doing the job well. But Mm -hmm. part of the job is being a performer. Part of the job is putting on a show. I dance to my walkout songs. I sing a lot of my walkout songs. Like I get jazzed up and I move. I wear different outfits and things like that. Like Mm -hmm. I put on a show. I perform. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably what's made me stand out over everybody else is on top of the fact that I put on great fights. Mm -hmm. I'm a genuine person when we're having these one-on-ones or these, these conversations and I, I, I perform. I really don't know what else to say outside of thank you, you know, for noticing <laughs> because I, I, it really does. I really do have a lot of appreciation for people who show up just to see me. I think that to quote Donald Cerrone, Donald Cerrone said that the BKFC is where fighters go to die. And he said that the night that Leonard Garcia fought Julian Lane, which I thought was fucked up because he was there to support Leonard Garcia. But anyway, moral of the story is (laughs) he said that the BKFC is where fighters go to die. And I took that personally. Like uh, my career is not over by any means. I don't Mm -hmm. see um, me retiring soon in any stretch of the imagination. For me to go into BKFC and to be bigger, in a sense than I was before. Cause you know, BKFC is not bigger than the UFC. So guys like Jason Knight and Artem and the heavyweights that came over, uh, Silva and that's right. Yeah. Gonzaga, all those guys, like they've all been in bigger places and they're taking a step back. If you want to look at yeah. it in that sense, mm-hmm. um, I don't have that goal. I don't have, that's not my intention. I would love to be the champion for bare knuckle i would love to be the 155 pound champion but that doesn't mean that's where i'm going to stop i'm still going to i'm going back to mma me and my coach have talked about me going to gloved boxing i'm still competing in jujitsu i have no goal and intent in dying in the bkfc to to quote donald cerrone so i it i take a lot of pride and i have a lot of appreciation when people tell me that i've grown since i've been there or that people will tune in just to see me fight because i'm on the card that makes me feel good that proves to me that what i've done for the last 12 years hasn't been for naught. it goes a long way to me to me i appreciate the fact that you just used the word perform five or six times because that's that's something that brian and i when we first started this podcast there was a what, what we were always brian and i are both musician arts type people here in nashville i've got a bit more of a background in actually practicing some martial arts although i've never been a competitor and him brian and i would end up at a concert or at like a gallery or something like that on a saturday night probably on a friday night because if it was a saturday night, we were probably at home watching fights but on a friday night we would run into each other 
and we'd be talking about this weird video installation or this strange music we were hearing. But then inevitably we'd be like, did you see that head kick last week? That was incredible. And so it's one of those things where I feel like, I feel like we, can you guys still see me? Yeah. Oh, okay. I don't see your little your little photos up here. So I thought maybe I lost you. He was like, do, do whatever you're doing, Brian. Anyway, speaking so to, speaking to the void as if we're not yeah, here. Okay. Yeah, I'll just, right. just trust, just trust <laughs> it, just, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like we, Brian and I always would look at these fights and see these things. And we would always see this, the artistry in them, not only in the technical skill and all that stuff, something honestly that I always find so wanting in the UFC, the showmanship and the characters and the, the pomp and circumstance and all that kind of stuff. And I did Definitely. I, like, again, I, I appreciate the fact that you really emphasize the performances that you put on, not only in the fights themselves, but before the fights and after the fights and the sort of artistic aspect that you bring to it. That's exactly what I'm trying to highlight and, and point out and I think is a, a big part of what you do. But in this whole talk we're having right now, you're also talking about all of this the way a martial artist talks about it and this that's the difference to me also with you and fighters like you is we some people are really like they are prize fighters and obviously you're a prize fighter as well but there's some people we talked to on the show and you're now in that club because we just talked for five minutes about this whole thing but you're speaking about this as a martial artist evolving through your craft and to me i think your move to bare knuckle was incredibly smart because you obviously have a much bigger spotlight than you had before as an MMA fighter. And when you get back, you know, into the cage to do an MMA fight, I can't wait to see that now. You know what also I mean? That, so. Also, that kind of makes it what's interesting, right? Is the, the idea of people traversing these different modes of fighting. I love and, it. And so you're, it's, <laughs> it's like an astronaut reentering the atmosphere each time. It's, I don't know, like the, the tiles yeah. may burn up or it may be <laughs> just like incredible and we'll see in Houston. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah 100%. I think there's also, there's an interesting thing where Cerrone's from, from an earlier generation in a way, in terms of the arc of his career. And I feel like when I think about what you're doing right now, and I think about what fighters like younger fighters, like Sean O'Malley and people like this are doing, it's like, we live in a different world. Now we live in a world where there is bare knuckle fighting on television. We live in a world right. where boxing is exciting. Again, we live in a world where we have MMA fights with a, a few different organizations on multiple platforms and stuff like this. So it's, and not to mention all the grappling and everything else that's out there. So to me, it's like when I see these fighters who like, oh, I had a fight in the UFC, but then I went and did this grappling tournament. And then I'm going to do a no-gi thing next month. And then I'm going to go do this and that. To me, there's interesting ways to move around in the world of combat sports right now. That to me, it's it's like the new it's like the new way to do it in a way, as opposed to, oh, I got in with a promotion and I had a run and I became a champion and defended my belt. And that's, that's like the way that like, I used to like, I'd go to work for Ford and 30 years later, they'd give me a watch and I'd <laughs> retire. You know what I mean? It's not right. really that anymore anyway. Right. In a way. Uh, we're independent contractors. That's the long and the short of it. If I want to go work for BKFC and then go work for the UFC, God willing, go work for whoever else. I'm, I'm allowed that that ability. I'm an independent contractor. I'm not, at this point, I'm not contracted in under anybody. But to get back to one of the things that you touched on earlier, I, I think that the UFC 20, I think traditional martial artists were saying the same thing that Donald Cerrone is saying today, 25 years ago. That's where competitors go to die, human mm. cockfighting, so on and so forth. It was so, oh, okay, yeah. was so outlandish 25 years ago. <laughs> and then, you know, it's, it's become the new swing of things. It's mm. the most mainstream sport in the world right now. Mm. Um, I think that when I made the step over to bare knuckle, I had that foresight was that this could be the sport that's the next UFC. This could be the next big thing in combat sports. Mm -hmm. And why not be there when history is made? I was at the first show. I fought on the second, fourth, and sixth show. And then again on the ninth, I think, or the 11th. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It was after that. But moral of the story <laughs> Um, I've been with this company since it started. I've been with this company. I was at the first show and I fought on the second show and I've been with them ever since. And to be a part of history and to 
to not go there and die, to go there and make a bigger name and then step off to another program and take that following with me elsewhere and now have the following that I have on Instagram and things like that where people who only know me from bare knuckle are, oh, oh this guy does jujitsu. This guy's like, he's an MMA fighter too. It just, mm. it helps me as a, as a, a as an entertainer, as a persona, mm -hmm. grow and expand and do more things with the, the gifts that I've been given. And I, I can't really do anything but thank the BKFC for that. If they hadn't done the things that they had done over the last 10 years to get everything sanctioned and regulated, I wouldn't be able to do the things that I'm doing now to make my name known. We have, we have a friend of the show, Jeff Coffin, and he's a saxophone player. He plays with this little startup band called Dave Matthews Band. That, <laughs> and they're starting to get pretty big, I think. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I've never, uh, all respect to my friend, Jeff, I've never voluntarily listened to a Dave Matthews band song, but, <laughs> but, uh, but have, I have appreciated when he's invited me out to a show and, and that's right. great. But no, he's a, a dear old friend and, and collaborator and all that. But I think about, it reminds me of him in a way where it's like, he's playing on the biggest stages, on the biggest tours in the top grossing concert act and on the biggest stage. All that said, when he comes back to here to Nashville, he is having sessions in his garage. He's playing little local jazz shows. He's, he is constant and he's teaching, he's doing clinic. Like he's doing all of these things that are most people I feel would be in a place where they'd be very comfortable to say, I, I have plenty of income. I play for one of the biggest bands in the world. I just, I know all the songs and <laughs> I'm good. This is great. Yeah. But just see, it's really inspiring to see how hard he works when people aren't really noticing or very small concentrated efforts or what he does to help people or all of that. And, and every, so when you're talking about moving through different promotions and all that too, it's, it's really only to me seemingly like a reflection of your internal quest, right? These are just manifestations of it, but ultimately it's like, uh, you're not doing this stuff only to, to have transferable notoriety across promotions. You're doing it because it's richly and actually your interest and your pursuit it just so happens that there's a way to have this kind of way to perpetuate it and have it be symbiotic or continue because you are marketing or you are being a little outward with your persona, but it's not inauthentic. And I, I think that it's the same as like shit talk or anything else where it's like when people are faking it, it's just painful to witness. Yeah, it's just gross. Yeah. Come on, man. <laughs> Who are you trying to convince? Me or you? Um, you know, but, you know, to, to touch on that, what I really like about that analogy is that, like Jeff, right? That was his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeff Coffin. So yeah, Jeff, he's he's one of the best saxophone players in the world, playing for one of the best bands in the world, and he goes home when he's not on tour. And what does he do? He hones his craft. He's not just playing a saxophone day in and day out, but he's teaching. He's working mm -hmm. with students. He's helping people out. All of these little things are all helping build his community, but also helping him hone his craft and helping him get better at what he does and, and, and further understand his understanding of what he does. It's very similar to what I'm doing when I'm just grabbing different parts of the combat sports world. I started this adventure in MMA. I planned on finishing this adventure in MMA. Mm -hmm. So why not do a little boxing? Why not do a little jujitsu? Why not do, you know, I'm just, all I'm doing is honing my craft. I'm just getting better at what I do day in and day out. And I, like I said, I spend every day in the gym. When I'm not training, I'm teaching. When I'm not teaching, I'm doing private lessons. When I'm not doing private lessons, I'm doing strength and conditioning programs and, and helping mm -hmm. people with meal plans and stuff like that like everything that i do that isn't directly fight related directly helps my fight related game and i think that's very similar to what your friend jeff is doing is he's not just practicing 24 7 but everything he does helps mold his craft and helps make him better i think all artists do that mm -hmm. really they should we, one thing we talk about when we've had artists on here who are professors or art instructors of some kind is we inevitably we want to ask them like more specifically what does teaching do for you when you say that you're teaching what do you are you teaching jujitsu are you doing pads with students what what kind of teaching do you do and and well how does that actually give you insights like more specifically you'd okay throw some analogies out there for you i love um, analogies if i say to you <laughs> yeah. two plus two is four and you say back to me, two plus two is four. The only thing that you know is the equation. 
you don't know what two is. You don't know what plus is. You don't know what four is. You don't know any of that. You can say so. so the, the moral of the story is you can learn something without knowing something. Mm-hmm. And what I really feel like teaching does is it forces me to know what I'm doing. I can mm-hmm. tell you to throw a jab. And if I don't tell you when to throw the jab, why to throw the jab and how to execute that jab properly, I don't know. I don't know why I'm telling you to throw the jab. I know just as much as you do. Mm-hmm. So when when I teach and when I instruct, it forces me to to digest and understand what it is that I'm trying to portray or get across to people. And if you can't if you can't teach it, if especially if you can't teach it to a child, mm-hmm. you shouldn't be teaching it to anybody, in my opinion. And I feel like that's why a lot of jujitsu players are instructors earlier in their game. You get a lot of white belts teaching kids, a lot of blue belts teaching kids, mm-hmm. and a lot of belts teaching kids because it forces you to understand the simplicity of the sport mm. but it also forces you to truly know what it is that you're teaching and be able to teach it to somebody in such a plain and blatant way that even a child can get it mm. so to answer this question in full circle again um <laughs> What I think teaching does for me is it just it forces me to truly understand my craft and my sport. That's what teaching does for me. And that's the benefit that I get out of having that in my life on a daily basis. There's no faster way to feel exposed, right? Than to be in a to be in a position of the purveyor of some knowledge. And right. then it becomes like a question of your own integrity, right? Because you're like mm-hmm. Uh, I can do like a lot of my high school teachers did and clearly phoned it in with a bunch of bullshit just to collect a paycheck. <laughs> Shout yep. out to my high school teachers. The other half, uh, <laughs> who I liked more, seemed to have a grasp of what they were talking about. And you can really feel it. And I think that actually, I think that actually helps with the transfer of knowledge is when somebody really knows something, they're teeming with and emanating the, the wisdom, uh, kind of energy or whatever it is that... This makes yeah, it easy, easier. It makes you more subconsciously able to accept their knowledge as just what for what it is, not challenging it as much because it just resonates. It's confidence. Probably like it's like a like when you figure out when you're young, you're like, oh, if you just walk up to a girl and don't act like an idiot and just say hi, how are you doing? It's really not that hard. And right. but if but if you're acting like squeamish or weird, like then they're just they're all their primordial red alerts are going to go off and you're probably not going to get a date, but there's something about certainty for you. There's something about certainty. And I, and I think that there's also like a, there's a difference between people that think they know everything and people that are actually resting comfortably in the actual knowing of their craft. Yeah. It goes back to the, the shit talking that you were talking about earlier. And that's truly who somebody is. It comes off as genuine. It comes off like you guys brought up Nick and Nate Diaz earlier. Like when Nick and Nate go off on somebody, there's no show there. There's no, they're not playing to the crowd. They're not playing to the cameras. Like whether there was nobody there or there was a thousand people there, they're going to fuck you up. And that's Mm -hmm. genuine. They mean that it's the same when people it's that same authenticity comes out when people are teaching or instructing and they actually know what they're talking about. They know their craft, whether it, whether they're a professor out of college and they're teaching psychology or they're teaching music or they're teaching martial arts when they know the craft and it's, it's just a part of their being. You feel that when they teach, you feel that when they instruct and it's like, this, this guy's good. But mm. when somebody's just faking or try, like I said earlier, who are you trying to convince me? It's like when that persona comes up, it's, I, I don't have time for this. You're not doing anybody any favors. So mm. yeah, no, I would have completely agree with you uh, on that. that well, you, you've been on the podcast almost an hour. So I wanted to ask you, have you figured us out yet that we're completely full of shit? <laughs> As far as the fight game's concerned, as far as- <laughs> Joe, I'm sorry to lump you into that. Brian's, Brian's just the, he's all he's got is the faints. That's it. That's, yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. I'm undefeated. I'm undefeated in faints. <laughs> That's okay. It's yeah. better to not have to hit people. I <laughs> That's true. The true master. Um, right, hey, well, right. before, well, we uh, while we still have you on the podcast, Tom. Let's really quick. Let's get, let's fast forward about a little bit more than a month and a half you are going back into the mma cage at the end of uh january and january 22nd or on january 20th tell us a bit about that fight let us know what's going on and how people can follow it and what you're doing to get prepared whatever you want to talk about perfect thank you all (laughs) so january 30th 2021 i'm sorry january 30th sorry that's all right that's all right january 30th 2021 i 
and the main event at Rage in the Cage (laughs) 78, I think. And I'm fighting Cody Fister. Cody Fister fought for the UFC by Sage. He fought a couple other guys on the undercard. Fought for Bellator a handful of times. He's been fighting up in Canada recently, but he's a really tough guy. It reminds me a lot of Darren Elkins, but at like mm-hmm. 155 and not as tough as far as like his wrestling is concerned. Because I've trained with Darren and Darren's a monster. But anyway, moral of the story is that's who I'm fighting. I'm fighting Cody Fister January 30th, 2021 in Lawton, Oklahoma. And I'm excited for it, man. I'm ready. Like I said, it's been, uh, it'll be almost three years. I think my last fight, my last MMA fight was February of 2018. So it'll be right about three years that I'll be making my comeback. And I'm excited. Like I said, I've put a lot of work in my wrestling and my jujitsu. So I'm excited to show that off. I've obviously been training my hands and these things are pretty lethal. So I'm excited to show those off as well. But that's really all Tom has coming up. I, I work, um, I apprentice to be a carpenter. So I work oh, wow. five days a week. And then after that, I go to the gym and I train. And that's the story of Tom's life. I'm trying to open up a gym here pretty soon. And and will, I should say me and my brother and a, a family friend of ours are trying to open up a gym here pretty soon. And so I've got a lot of chaos going on. But as far as what's going on in Tom and his personal life, follow me on Instagram mm-hmm. uh, right there. If you're yeah. looking at the little screen, Tom Dashof, that's me. I'm on Facebook. You can't miss this mug. I'm holding my mustache like that. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, yeah, just reach out, say hello, say hi, share this video, and let everybody know that that you love me and that you support me. And well, I I appreciate you. Yeah. And we have. Is this the world record for conversations with you without bringing up the mustache mafia situation? Is it this might the, be. I mean, okay. it might be. Yeah. But, you just, uh, you just it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still in it. Me and the mafia are still as thick as thieves. And Eddie's still training hard and making sure that I'm growing this thing out to the best of my ability, sending me waxes and creams and so on and so forth. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're, we're trying to take over as far as the, the mafia is concerned, but one step at a time. There's been some good mafias, I think, but this is uh, this is up there with the best, I think. I am forced to agree with you on that. One. <laughs> it it so, might just be cuz I'm a member, but uh, yeah. you know, I'll, well, I'll I, take that bias and I'll run with it. I feel, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure that I ever hit puberty because I'm not sure that I can even <laughs> grow a mustache. So it's just a sad thing when you just know I don't even have the the genes to be a future part of this club or anything. I can't even be a fa- I can't even be like a fanboy on Instagram with my own thing. Joe, yeah. you could do it though. I do it. I disagree. I think that you can pull it off. I just oh, think shit. You don't it enough. You don't give it enough try. But I will say this: if it's any consolation, this <laughs> see all that hair right there. You yeah. don't because it doesn't fucking grow there. <laughs> um, this is about all I get. So I can't grow a beard. I could never be part of the beard brigade. Um, <laughs> so I'll just stick with the mustache mafia and you know, we'll take over that way. So, so yeah. there's hope. And and then ultimately, I'm, I am I don't compete or train necessarily, but I could take TRT and see what that does. So <laughs> you should do that and let me know. Maybe some TRT <laughs> with psilocybin and turn into a berserker. And <laughs> Wow. <laughs> you just blew my mind with that thought. Like, like what if, so, because I think a lot of people have talked, I don't, I'm not trying to go down the wormhole of performance enhancing drugs right now, but let's hey, just, we're here. We're here. Let's just, I'm just saying they should just have an all steroids league for each sport and just let it get wild. And <laughs> as things become cybernetic, we have prosthetics, we have all the different sort of performance enhancing things. It becomes like a competition of innovation. Maybe some people will die. But yeah, maybe, <laughs> probably a few, but people are going to be going to take it. They're going to take the- that. <laughs> they're going to, they're going to want greatness. Yeah. yeah. I just, I think about all the possibilities there, but when you're talking about a steroid enriched, yeah, like this is something to ponder for sure. Now, but I think though, that ultimately when we always try to loop back around and finish the show with just a, why are we doing this? We talk about art and we talk about fighting. I think you're a great example of why we we do that. We're so glad to have you here and we hope that you'll be accept our invitation to be a friend of the show and come back after and, and tell us about all the, all your experience and what happens in January. Hopefully all this stuff will happen, man. Everything's so crazy. You can't live in the sort of speculation, right? You just got to just go forward. You got to bend with the wind and just get after it. I I firmly believe that. But no, I I also firmly believe in that whole manifest destiny thing. You speak it into reality and things can happen. I I really do 
hold hold that close to my core. So yeah, everything's going to go wonderfully in January. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to perform. I'm, I know I can. I'm going to get the W and I'm going to come back on the show and we're going to share war stories and you guys are going to tell me what you've been up to for the last month and a half and show off my new scars. That's All right. That's great. You're making my job easy. I already know who's coming on the show at the beginning of February. And I'll, I will have the most faint outline of a version. <laughs> I better be so- start now. <laughs> yeah. have at bare minimum, what's what's his name from Super Troopers? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Mexican that offers mustache rights. I can't think of his name. Anyway, <laughs> if you start now, you could probably have something pretty close to that. All right. I appreciate it. <laughs> Tom, you're the only person that's ever really believed in me. <laughs> so I really appreciate it, man. Because I'll tell you right now. We're changing lives today, guys. <laughs> I, I, I'm t- that's right. Because if I tell my wife this is what's going on, like we're pretty much isolating together. So it's going to be... I don't even have a break during the day. I'm going to be getting ridiculed every like <laughs> yeah. every 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Embrace it's, it. It's part of the thing. Yeah. Cause like when you're rolling with the finished, I mean, look at this thing. Like when you're rolling with the finished goods there, you just like, yeah, I, I still have a, I, I'm, this is like a 1984 Corolla with like <laughs> paint <laughs> faded. You know what I mean? There's I, the, the promise of putting big wheels on this is not enough. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know what I would say is the counter argument to that. <laughs> Unlike a 1984 Corolla where you got to do a bunch of work to it with your face, you just got to leave it alone. <laughs> leave it alone. <laughs> It'll grow. It's very zen. It's If you want this dream to be realized, then you better do nothing. Precisely. <laughs> instead of being a performer oh man so many gems for everybody to walk away from with this thanks so much tom we're gonna we're gonna punch our little end card here and then we'll see you in the green room right after joe do you have anything you want to plug before we sign out man i can't think of anything to talk about other than to thank tom we had a little bit of technical difficulty earlier today we had some problems last week but i appreciate you having the patience and the desire to stick all that out with us and to come on the show it's been a great talk i knew it would be and it has been so thank you so much tom for being with us and we'll skip next week everybody because next week is thanksgiving on thursday but we'll be back the following thursday with sean sheehan from severe mma and he's got a great video on youtube where he breaks down the ufc's rule of fighting. And even if you think of the rules, believe me, you don't know the rules. So if you want to know a uh, judge's perspective for real, check out that video and, and come back in two weeks and, and we're going to have a great talk with Sean. Super excited about that. All right. Hey, thanks again, uh, everybody. And we will see you on the other side. Hang on one sec. Appreciate it, everybody. Thank you. Guys. Okay guys, I love the Art Fight Podcast, and I listen to every episode even though I am a robot trying to sound like an actual person. I know it takes a lot to keep the podcast going. How can I help? Go to anchor.fm forward slash artfightpodcast, click on the button, the big old button that says support this podcast, and once you get there, you'll have three options. You can just choose the lowest level. You're going to pledge 99 cents a month to, to our production and, and help us out. Again, anchor.fm forward slash art fight podcast. Click on support this podcast. All right. Thanks, everyone.